Welcome to Kaleidoscope Live. We are the Kaleidoscope team from the British Journal of Psychiatry, and this is our first webinar of 2022. As you'll know, if you've been here before, every month we publish in a column in the British Journal of Psychiatry. We bring the best science to you, and we take a couple of the papers to the webinar each month. Please do join in by adding text at the side. So we have a couple of papers this month we're going to talk about. One is about medication in women, and the second one asks does psychology have a physics envy problem? So the first paper, this paper is by Brand et al. It's in Psychological Medicine. And it might seem surprising, should we have special guidelines for women? After all, they only make up 52% of the population. But this paper says that, yes, we should. And it takes on in a few different ways that are quite interesting. The first thing that was really interesting for me is it challenges the standard epidemiological teaching around psychosis and gender. And the first part is it says it's not true, the standard teaching that women necessarily have better outcomes in psychosis. And that was a standard teaching when I was a junior doctor and through most of my training. And it argues instead that more recent data suggests that women have just as many admissions to hospital. The trajectory over time is pretty similar to men, but there are some crucial differences and these tend to involve medication. And so we're aware that men are typically bigger than women, but medication guidelines are based around a standard 70 kilogram man, and that's problematic. So if we look at the basic physiology. If you think about how medication is absorbed, how it's metabolized and how it's excreted, this is typically slower in women. It's different between men and women. And what that means is if you give both the same dose of medication, the woman will have a higher dose in her bloodstream. And this is amplified by hormonal effects. So what we've learned with time is that estrogen in particular enhances the binding of dopamine. So if you've got a man and a woman and you dose them so they're the same serum level, so you took into account the difference in absorption, metabolism, and excretion, the woman would still have greater binding of dopamine because of the impact of the hormone on it. So that opens up the question, which the authors introduce as that women are over-medicated by default with antipsychotics. So what are we going to do about it? So what do the rest of you think about the paper? As the non-clinician of the group, can I just jump in? Because I read this, and was literally just going through like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, this all seems super reasonable. Yeah, oh, there's a difference here. We better respond. Okay, good. It turns out this is somehow controversial. This is somehow new, right? That, that quite literally estrogen, which immediately means pregnancy, <laughs> lactation, menstruation, menopause, all of these areas require some sort of special consideration. They're just life. So how is it, with all due respect, that this has been going on? Like, how are we just quite literally ignoring <laughs> the actual nature of the biology of women? Please enlighten me. I'm not, I'm not sure that I can enlighten you. All I can say is there's a lot of studies uh, that are carried out in men uh, that don't include women because people are concerned, particularly drug studies where people are concerned about the effects that that may have on people who might become pregnant. I think there's an increasing awareness that that's something that we need to fix. But 
in essence, people prescribe on the basis of the data that's available. So if you don't have data, which is proportional or tells you to do something different in 52% of the population, then you just do what's in the, in the trials. Uh, and for me, I guess there were things that I knew that, you know, you, you kind of think, okay, so females will have a higher proportion of fat, a lower proportion of uh, muscle, may have smaller organs because of their size. And there was a bunch of things that I didn't know. So which was, I think like there's a 15% increase in brain blood flow in females. Uh, there is much higher bioavailability. And I remember reading the uh, thing that, that Derek described about estrogen and its impact on dopamine sensitivity. So effectively during, if you have high levels of estrogen, then you're much more sensitive to the impact of anything on, on your dopamine receptors. That includes blockade. Uh, and then the other kind of, and the other thing that I didn't know was that they have a 15% reduced uh, glomerular filtration rate. So actually their kidney excretion is that. And so the message from all of those things is that during that kind of premenopausal phase, women will tend on the whole to have much higher levels of medication for any given dose. And then how you get rid of that in terms of its uh, metabolism is a slightly more complex because the kind of cytochrome P450 system, which is used to kind of help the metabolism of a bunch of these drugs, actually is not consistent in the way that it performs uh, across different antipsychotics. So that looks like it needs a little bit uh, more thought. And then the other thing, which again is kind of obvious, is that in certain uh, folk, we tend to use long-acting injectable medication. And that's generally something that's put into, that is influenced by the amount of fat in the system. So basically it's likely that that will influence the amount of absorption and release of those kind of medication. So for me, it was, it was educational on the front that I didn't know about all of these physiological variables which are likely to influence uh, absorption. And there were a bunch of things that I did know about, but I wasn't sure that it was at the forefront of my mind during my prescribing. So the period to answer your question more succinctly is the period when I am immensely concerned about the effect of these is when people tell me that they're thinking about becoming pregnant or um, whether they've had a baby and we're thinking about what, what do we do in terms of, of breastfeeding and these kind of very practical suggestions. And the folk who fall into the remit of the kind of the perinatal psychiatrists where people have uh, these kind of these illnesses which arise as a consequence of these rapid changes in hormonal balance and we are concerned about how we can we can manage during that time both with a concern around uh, the baby but also around the mother and then I guess the other thing is that we are not particularly good at thinking about these kind of post-menopausal changes that you suddenly have all of these hormonal effects and then suddenly you hit an age and those will change. So I think the awareness of that, that actually there will be an influence if we follow this model that we think we're gonna require less medication during the pre-menopausal phase, then we may need to also anticipate the fact that during that peri and post-menopausal phase, we may need to adjust medication. So for me, it was a really good reminder about just not actually just sticking to the same practice that you've always done, but actually to focus on each person as a, as a new 
arrival and also to think about where they are in their trajectory, not only in life, but particularly in respect to their kind of hormonal balance. Yeah, Suki, exactly what you were, you were saying in um, clinical team I used to work in. Um, we, we would often see uh, bimodal distribution of women presenting to services with psychotic disorders. And, uh, and the second mode was women who were around the age of menopause. So we, we had people who were approaching menopause, going through menopause and postmenopausal, and it represented a discrete group of people. <clears throat> The presentations obviously weren't uniform, but they were, there were certain similarities. And I remember going to, to, to two meetings where we discussed what can we do to better help this particular, this very clearly quite discreet cluster of patients. Uh, you know, there was a prototype for that kind of patient. And we were, we were scrabbling around looking for prescribing guidance on, for example, you know, co-prescribing HRT with treatment for psychosis. And, and the thing that excited me about this paper, and I'm, I'm super enthusiastic about it and endorse it because it's an area I don't know very much about. And when I was reading it, I was just, it just kept clicking going, oh my God, that's exactly right. This is what I recall from the people that I've seen. So I've got that kind of bias in that I was, I, I was looking out for this data and this evidence. And I think that the, the authors have done a fantastic job of um, describing the literature, describing the, uh, and making recommendations that I really wish were in the, you know, the, the standard guidelines because they're super helpful and useful and they address exactly the sorts of questions that we were asking about. For example, we would use um, risperidone for certain types of presentations, um, but always at way lower doses than you would predict from the guidelines, which says the treatment dose is four milligrams once a day. And we'd find that people actually would respond at way lower doses. But in addition to that, when we tried to use treatment doses or published treatment or recommended treatment doses, we'd find that people had horrible side effects and quite quickly as well. So, you know, going from three to four milligrams, all of a sudden we would have people experiencing unpleasant and intolerable side effects. So we'd very often be titrating up for that particular group of women in that particular age group. And the postmenopausal or the perimenopausal uh, age period for women um, seems to be a risk for psychotic type presentations and in addition there was nothing to tell us what to do there was nothing that personalized care for that specific group of people so that my, my endorsement of this paper is just that every paragraph you read you think yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense and they and and in extraordinary credit to them they actually give you specific guidelines. it actually reads like a treatment recommendation so i've got nothing more to add to that than it's timely appropriate and it represents the best kind of evidence-based medicine it helps us actually personalize treatment to the individual that's sitting in front of you so it's more than time isn't it it's it's overdue it's 2022 and we're having a discussion how we're fascinated that there are yeah there's a specialist prescribing for a niche area which is women and again for 52 percent of the population <clears throat> yeah and, and, there's a question sorry Derry. i sorry i was talking over you and how it's perceived, it's almost been niche pharmacological prescribing. But, but one of the comments from Sahana, which picks up, I wonder if there's a complexity to it. So Sahana asks about uh, adjustments in ov ovulatory phases or during menstrual cycles. So I guess there's a complexity to prescribing too. But I don't know if this is where it's gone into niche areas such as perinatal psychiatry or specialist clinics. And we know that in practice, these services don't really exist. If you think between... Uh, 
obscurity and of, of medic medicine and uh, treatment for for menopause and so forth and psychiatry i mean there's a huge gap in in the middle and, and yet there's a huge clinical need sorry dan you were, you were going to come in I was exactly picking up on that. There's a question in the chat I think you just referenced, which is those adjustments in ovulatory phases and how practical that is. Well, I, I guess I think that question is really interesting. There was, I read a paper a few years back that, that recommended, uh, and by the way, this is not me endorsing it, I'm just telling you about a paper, which said that, you know, a short-term use of SSRI medications for mood dysphoria around the menstrual cycle um was something that people were starting to either recommend or think about so i think if we're you know th th there's a precedent for this that you should be able to dose adjust medications uh, for people so that it responds to natural physiological fluctuations i mean we do that in a much more static way by saying uh, you know aiming for 70 percent you know antagonism at dopamine receptors we kind of titrate up to that we know we've gotten to 70 percent Okay, when the person starts to experience extrapyramidal side effects and we titrate back, I mean, it wouldn't take more than about six weeks or maybe 12 weeks if you wanted to catch two ovulatory cycles, then you would have some measure of a way of titrating the dose down when you have uh, down or up in accordance to the amount of estrogen that the person's endogenously producing and exposed to. So it shouldn't be rocket science. Um, yeah. I wonder if we can pass this back to the non-clinician in the room, because I suspect we haven't reassured you, Don. And, and there's an interesting comment by Sierra here that who asks, with all due respect, isn't this a problem in psychiatry in general, that we stop seeing uh, people as individuals as separate, but we're, we're seeing in terms of doses. And I mean, that probably sounds a, a fair comment in terms of what's being discussed here. Yeah, I mean... So I'm going to come from a slightly radical place, which is that uh, going back to, I think it was uh, Sahara's comment about how practical is this? Well, what if we switched our perspective and what if we made prescribing in a nuanced way around normal biological processes in females, the more complicated case, what if we made that the baseline? Then everything's easier if men are the exception, right? So right now, if, if we're biasing, you know, if, if we're using male as the default, then yeah, that seems really like impractical, really difficult, super complicated. And our organs aren't smaller, um, except unless you compare us against a default male. So I think, I think there's a perspective missing here that, that actually, if you just reverse it real quick, everything becomes a bit easier you have the, the the capacity you know you have data if we just said nope instead we're going to prioritize the more complex situation so that anything a little bit more linear kind of easily flows from that it's a totally different practice right or is it i mean i don't know i i just I that, I see default biases that that we can't seem to get out of you're a genius i think that's the way the drug development should follow that along with ethics I think you're right that those the only way of resolving that is to say that we need rather than say we need an equal number of different folk from different gen different genders in every single trial that we carry out actually we want to super sample the more complex yeah. female and therefore that will make our because the other ones are relatively uninteresting and straightforward but I think that does require quite an effort of will in terms of slightly more complex designs and asking some of the questions that Dan's raised in terms of how do we, how can we look at flexibility within those trial designs where we can look for this titration rather than the current trial designs, which are very much 
here's, here's kind of stream A versus stream B versus a control in a very, very fixed way. There's very little room in a lot of those trials for titrating up. There's certainly very little room for titrating down because mm -hmm. they're all based on one or two uh, outcomes. So I think that there's a complexity in that that needs to be addressed. But I think it's not insurmountable, even just starting it from the point of view of the of insisting that the ethics committees for which need to review every single one of these trials will be to say that it's it's no longer acceptable not to have at least 52% of the sample as being female, even if you don't say that you're going to do more of that. And that will be a relatively easy way of implementing that. I have to say, I think that's slowly becoming much more accepted that people are asking questions if you're suggesting that you want to do trials which are only single gender. We, we discussed this on a previous uh, podcast who were talking about the fact that it can't just lie with individual research teams. It's got to be journals and what they'll accept and the statements they put out and what's good science in terms of grants that are applied. I mean, I'm mindful we submitted a paper this morning that was a neuroimaging paper that was 20 right-handed men. And the, the science tends to perpetuate this stuff along. And the trials that occur are often starting off. Now. So to, to Dawn's point, it, it's, it's, it's the wrong way around. There's a question from Jesse. I don't know if you guys have time to simulate it. It's quite a complex one in terms of estrogen's effects on the brain. I'll let you read it while we go through. I mean, it is quite complicated. And again, I think this has been an understood. Again, it feels to me it's felt a niche area, which of course it can't be if it's about most of the population. So Isaac's mentioned discussion is long overdue, the shortcomings of teaching of pharmacology. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think we like to think of ourselves as a group of people who are progressive in our thoughts, but it, it, I, I suspect we're highlighting the, the, the fact the challenge for, at every level here from academic through to teaching and clinical practice. And, and, and services are not set up for this either. So I work in an NH, NHS trust. I think it's a good NHS trust, but we, we don't have services. Nothing, nothing is geared for it. Unless you have a specific, like you have to have a specific interest in this topic and take it on. So from designing the science to running the studies to submitting to journals to 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 how we run our services, they're, they're not doing due justice to our populations. And if the consequences are are severe and medical, and again, this really does echo the the preclinical paper we talked about um, on gender balance previously a, a couple of episodes ago, but you know, we're actually going against like sustainable development goals of gender equality. And we, if we're over medicating women because we're not taking their biology into account, it's a much broader thing. And I think Helen's point here around, around grant giving bodies and all of that, but, but really sort of owning it as um, urgent, I think it would be a super start, you know? There's the whole, I can't answer Jesse's point, I'm afraid. It's not something I know know anything about um i mean the paper does speak to the idea that uh, the prolactin or hyperprolactinemia effects that you get because of dopamine blockade around the pituitary i think that's been that's well recorded and well understood um at least as a clinical principle but i can't speak to the idea of estradiol blockade and its effect in utero um another question that's that's coming up is uh, that speaks to to Suki's point was about, is there a, I think it's Nagina, my apologies if I, I mispronounce the G. Um, research might also be at fault that women have not been included. And that's a really good point because men are considered safe trial participants because they cannot get pregnant. So I think that that, that points to the, the regulatory and probably a certain amount of the business case for trials is that you don't want to be trying a phase one drug 
in a in a population i.e in women where there's a there's a risk of kind of a longer term because women bear children that there's a reticence to 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 study that group of people which is also the similar reason why we don't have any good data you know or pharmacovigilance we only have pharmacovigilance data and we don't have any very good guidance on how to treat you know young people and children and it's for exactly the same reason it's because no one's prepared to take the risks associated with studying that group. Um, so I think I think Nagin has made a really good point there. It's you know w women are excluded for a whole host of reasons that are institutional and um, and structural, but also the the, the pharma companies aren't going to be keen to study a, a group of people where they run the risk of exposing themselves to liability. Well, look, Casey said, I'm glad Casey said this and not me, because I'd be accused of just centering this back on men and what about us too. But at the point's also made that we don't tend to take male hormonal uh, changes into account either. And there's, there are emerging data about testosterone as a potential treatment in some instances of men with depression, for example. It, it's really the, the whole field of psychoendocrinology, I guess. It, it, it's there, but it's very niche and it's kind of taken in isolation. And Isaac, I think, mentioned it earlier on too. Like it's back to your initial point, Don. It's not as if this is an entirely new concept about endocrinology. We've kind of known this back in med school a long, long time ago. But in terms of translating into practice and academic practice and in terms of clinical practice, the, the, yeah, the, it goes back to your, your comment. The paper is, is, is timely and, in fact, long overdue. Yeah, I mean, so someone else here, uh, Vasily, and again, I hope I pronounced their name correctly. Um, would there need to be adjustments for the trans community? And I think this is a, a really good point. Again, we're, we're talking in you know uh, binary categories of men and women, but maybe the point here is that you have a hormonotype, which is a, yeah, a longitudinal characterization of how the spectrum of hormones in your body behaves around you know different cyclical periods if, if cyclical at all but that's that's sort of the idea of personalization is it doesn't necessarily matter whether you want to talk about men or women what you need to talk about is the biology that that person experiences and presents with right that's what you really need to be doing so i, I take that point on board i think that's a really good point and i think it can be uh, i think it could be answered by looking at the idea of having a description of the person's biological predispositions and not focusing so much on men and women the, I mean, logistics are important. So I see Helen's asked about do we, where do you apply influence to make sure that that happens? Because I think if you just leave the system as it is, you'll always go down the path of least resistance and avoid complexity and avoid risk because that's just intuitive. So I think the, the, the points, I think for me, the overall, overarching thing is that all of our medical practice, particularly in psychiatry, needs to be personalised for that individual and all of the variables that are likely to influence the illness and particularly the treatment trajectory are things that we need to consider. So that's basically, this is asking for, this is essentially saying that there are hormonal variations, there are variations in phenomenology, there are variations in the epidemiology, even the age of onset of schizophrenia is you know, later in females than it, than it is in males, and that's a relatively consistent finding. So there's all of these, the facts that we know which allow us to personalize our care. But the issue for us, I think at the moment, is that the quality of the data that we have to make those decisions, to personalize that care, is probably not quite where we want it to be, which then moves the question to, well, how do you get better quality data coming through the studies that you're doing? And those, I think you're looking at kind of mandatory levers. So the people who are giving the money, and this is Helen's point, what about grant giving bodies? 
the people who are giving that money need to be aware of the fact that this is something that's important. And the people who are designing the studies need to have an expectation and the people who, that this will be designed with this population in mind. And then the people who are looking at the ethics and the kind of morality of what the process is should be aware of the fact that it's not, it is unethical just to do studies in one gender because it's not going to be helpful in terms of personalizing across the board. So I think actually it brings out quite a lot of different themes uh, from, from, from that one kind of observation that things are different based on hormone changes. I think this is the most unified we've been about any paper we've spoken about on these <laughs> webinars. So I'm going to leave the last comments in this paper to Nazreen and Sahana, so we, which kind of sum up what we've been saying about this greater need for personalization and precision medicine, which I think we all support. And Sahana mentions then about adolescent populations. So this clearly it's going to be changes there too. Okay, we're going to change tack onto a second paper. This paper is from the journal Perspectives in Psychological Science. It's called The Conceptual, Cunning and Conclusive Experiment in Psychology. And Dan, you're going to tell us that psychology has physics envy. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, the, 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 this paper excited me. Um, uh, yeah. I introduced the, the term physics envy because uh, so I think someone on, on Twitter described it in that way. And I like the idea, right? And, um, the, the paper's about this. It's, um, they, they talk about, psych I think the psychological sciences is a better way of saying it. So this would include, you know, um, any, any scientific endeavor that aims to explore or explain, you know, human behavior as noisy and as messy as it is. I don't think it's particularly... It's certainly not an anti-psychologist paper at all. It's actually quite, I think, quite a clever deconstruction of the way modern psychology does things experimentally. Um, and it sort of exposes how um, the dominant philosophical paradigm for generating hypotheses, generating experiments, and then studying, or sorry, then analyzing the results of them is flawed. That's their point. It's that we've got an entirely wrong model. So th this is the way I understand the paper. And I'm not a philosopher of science. So it's, you know, my enthusiasm for it should be tempered a little with, I'm not a philosopher of science. But they, 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 the, Ernest Rutherford once said that there was, a, you know, if your experiment needs a lot of statistics you should have done a better experiment so the idea is that you shouldn't need to use lots of sophistry to get to the answer that your experiment was designed to prove and de brewer and, and russell's paper says that there's something called the hypothetical deductive approach to science and it derives from physics and the example they use in the paper which is a really good one i think is arthur eddington's expedition to brazil for the solar eclipse in 1919 the reason it's pressing is this is because general einstein had published his theory of general relativity about four or five years before which said that light from distant stars will be bent as it as it as it traverses from the star to planet earth it will be bent as it goes around the sun so the solar eclipse is perfect for that because light from a, a distant constellation would have to go around the sun or would it would uh, intersect with the sun so they could actually measure that so einstein predicted i've written the number down here okay einstein's theory generally predicts that the change in the angle as a result of the light being bent around the sun will be 0 0.000483 degrees right that's precision for you <laughs> now that theory predicted that so all eddington had to do was go and measure yeah before the eclipse and after the eclipse the positions of these stars on a photographic plate and all you have to do is 
measure that a number of times just so that you sh you're sure your measurement error is relatively narrow. So you, the only uncertainty that you need to accommodate in the analysis of that experiment is whether or not you're just getting small deviations as a function of your measurement error, right? That's how they prove that theory to be or prove or demonstrated that theory was supported by evidence, right? Very rigorous theory, yeah, okay. The theory was consistent with other theories, although it contradicted some of them. It had a consistent theoretical family around it. It made a specific quantifiable prediction. It wasn't just there will be more of this or less of that. We don't know which direction it's going to be. It said it's going to be this number. Okay. And then you have to go and do the experiment. And that's it. So that's what the paper describes as cunning experiments, experiments that surprise you because they work so well. And their argument, or De Bruyne and Russell's argument, is that's because that in physical sciences, the predictions that you make are strongly connected to the hypothesis. The hypothesis is strongly connected to the theory, and the theories are well connected to each other. So when you find a piece of empirical evidence, okay, it's not you're not just supporting your, you're not rejecting your null hypothesis and then saying, so any other hypothesis could be true, you've got a very strong prediction and you're trying to quantify the effect. You're not trying to say, as we often do in, in psychological sciences, you're not trying to say there will be an effect and it could go either up or down and we'll just do a two-sided t-test to decide that, right? You're actually looking not for a direction of effect, not is, is there, isn't there, you're looking for a, a discrete number that you already know the value of and you're trying to confirm it. So that's their argument. That's hyper, hyper, hypothetical deductive science. They're saying psychology can't cope with that because fundamentally, if you take a human, an observed human phenomena, and they give a load of examples in the paper, the great one being the, uh, the Wansink paper about the soup bowl that keeps filling itself up. So the participant will keep eating without knowing that the bowl's filling up. Um, and that became hugely controversial because of course it was proven to be complete bunk um, and, and the results were fudged. Now, their argument is this, is that if you set up a, uh, you can set up a null hypothesis, there will be no difference between group A and group B, where group A are exposed to one set of stimuli, group B are exposed to an orthogonal set. Um, if you reject the null hypothesis, yeah, you just say it's bigger or smaller, yeah, and usually with one of those awful p-value tests, right? Um, so you can hypothesize that your theory could be that um, God intervenes and uh, or ESP is the reason that people perform this way in experiment. You can come up with any theory you want, okay, but you'll only frame that as rejection of a null hypothesis that there's no effect. So I show there's no effect and therefore the default is any arbitrary theory that I've put at the start of my paper to justify this experiment. And that's the bit that caught that caught my attention because I thought, well, that's, that's really elegant and that, that kind of explains why we often find ourselves looking at papers like the Wansink study or the Zimbardo study on you know conformity in social psychology. Um, what was the other one? Oh, the Rosenhan study where people presented themselves to psychiatric hospitals, got admitted and diagnosed. All of these kinds of things um, don't lend themselves to a strong marriage between theory, hypothesis, prediction and result. Okay, and because of that, the argument, I think the argument De Brewer and Rossell are making is that you have to go back almost to like, almost like behaviorism, you have to go back to cataloging examples yeah, of inputs and outputs without trying to hypothesize some elaborate mechanism in the middle. The physics envy part comes from this trend that I think we've seen 
in a lot of scientific work, I think psychiatry is vulnerable to this too, is if you make something complicated, you throw a ton of mathematics into it, you throw elaborate complex models, boxes and arrows, yeah, you come up with a very elaborate theory, your reader is persuaded that that's pretty cool, yeah, and then when you show you can reject the null hypothesis, therefore all of this rubbish I've just told you is true, yeah, you're super persuaded by it, because it's like, wow, it took me a lot of intellectual effort to get my head around it, it must therefore be true. So I thought this, um, and, and Suki, years and years ago, you, you recommended Freakonomics to me, and I read that book like in one sitting. And the reason was every chapter is like, wow, isn't that counterintuitive? It must be true. When things are counterintuitive and surprising, you're more persuaded by them. Um, so that's why this paper struck, really struck a chord with me, because it, it says that all of these cunning, exciting, surprising results are probably false positives anyway, right? Can I ask two things about that? Yeah. So, so one is, I, I mean, I get the point about sometimes studies not being well designed from a psychological or a psychiatric perspective and also trying to dazzle with science. But I, I found that the comparison with physics, I'm not sure if it's valid. So physics, we're all aware that physics can seem quite complex, but sometimes, you know, you get a big enough telescope. It's really just a measurement problem and it's easier to do in physics. So they work to a five sigma rule, right? So you need to have that's a p-value one in a million false positive but but that's just so that it's easier in physics to do some things the second is a question to our viewers or one of these psychology experiments that's cited is the one where a gorilla walks by in the background if people notice i'm i'm curious if anyone saw dan's cat walk behind him while he was talking <laughs> uh, we, we were doing live science there that was done intentionally dan's cat is the highest paid member of this team. Has anyone else got any comments on that? Not the cat, but the science bit. Derek, I think to, to follow up your point, your, your first point, not the point about the cat, although that was a beautiful invisible gorilla moment, right? Um, the, um, sorry, Derek, you'll have to repeat your first point. I've forgotten it, sorry. I, I just wonder if it's slightly disingenuous, the paper's point, not yours. Oh, I, I see. I, I get the, the, there's an argument about how well-constructed experiments are how we get can be dazzled by you know p-value of 0.05 if it's well designed and we've done other papers and how a good graph can win someone over but i think the comparison to physics isn't necessarily fair so physics large experiments can do measurements on scales that are not possible in biological sciences and we can get we get dazzled in a different way so you could never do a five sigma experiment in in a biological science that i can imagine so it, i'm not sure the comparison with physics is directly fair. I think this is, it, the, the core argument to me is about good design in biological and behavioral sciences. I think I agree with you. The comparison probably isn't fair, but I don't think the to defend De Brewer and Russell's paper. Yeah, and again, this is my understanding, so I'm defending it on the basis of my probably flawed understanding. It's not that they're saying that physics has got it easy because, right? What they're saying is the very method of designing or coming up with an idea for an experiment in physics, yeah, is guided by the idea that the theory will make a quantifiable prediction that you then go looking for experimentally. Whereas that, so that hypothet hypothetical deductive approach is not appropriate to psychological sciences because you don't have a, a general theory of relativity, yeah? Because you don't have that, and there's not a mesh of theories around it that support or refute it, you can't then go and design a super precise experiment that says, when I fill a soup bowl by exactly 10%, yeah, 
you will see exactly 1.75 spoonfuls difference in the amount the patient or the sorry participant consumes yeah because you cannot make those kinds of links from your theory to quantitative predictions instead we resort to what they call in the paper statistical whitewashing which is where we say well the effect could be it goes up or down so we'll just look for an, a qualitative effect of more or less yeah and that's their point is you can't move um you you can't use the hypothetical deductive approach yeah a, a cunning experiment derived from an elaborate theory won't work for psychology i think that's their point and they sort of one of the examples they gave that, that i guess is slightly relevant to psychiatric work is um the elimination of the category of homosexuality from the dsm where they said the reason that happened wasn't because of some elaborate hypothetical deductive principle it was simply people just went away and studied yeah, the population prevalence of the thing, the question or the, the, the subject of investigation. And it became clear that it should not be pathologized. So that's a slightly, you know, obtuse example. But I think their point is we should spend more time cataloging examples of where a phenomenon is visible and, in, and the context in which it's visible, rather than taking complex human behavior or phenomena isolating it to a really controlled lab experiment that would never have ecological validity or would generalize beyond that lab yeah and then whitewashing the result with some funky statistics i think that's their point is we should perhaps spend more time cataloging the world around us and less time designing experiments from a basis that we have a strong theory i don't um no you go ahead please no I, so the only thing i want to add i'm not sure that it's quite as binary as you're making it in the sense I don't I agree with Derek I think what they're suggesting is you just need better quality experiments and they're just trying to describe essentially what what you've said Dan is kind of narrow narrow sexy high impact not very generalizable to real life studies are not the way to go but finding uh, theories that you can test which are a bit more real life understanding the factors that influence them whether they're cultural variables or whatever else they may be understanding where they work why they don't work and adopting this kind of more parametric design rather than kind of fail yes no of a hypothesis making a, a theory which will allow you to grade the amount of change that you're expecting to see will is, is the way forward so actually is the way forward in, in our experiments is actually to be much more sophisticated and be a bit braver. And that necessarily requires you to be able to link the theory to the hypothesis that you're testing, especially if you're making a quantifiable hypothesis, and will then is much more likely to have uh, an impact in, and that is generalizable to other situations because you're just doing more robust science. They also make the point to say that they're not saying that you shouldn't, uh, you know, that our research won't benefit from us being much more strict, like using proper p-values with corrections for whatever, however many comparisons you're doing, uh, doing pre-registration. They describe that as being honest, that you put up front what you're going to do to stop what Dan described as the whitewashing uh, process <laughs> post, post hoc and also, just to be more diligent, that don't expect that you need to be able to replicate your studies in different labs, in different environments, in different cultures, just to show that what you're describing is a 
is a, is a robust thing. They also argue for rather than showing simple relationships between two things, using some understandable mechanism like kind of mediation analysis to say, we expect an effect that will, this will have an impact on this variable to this extent. So you can actually test those kind of things explicitly. Just before we came on air, we, we discussed the fact that actually we discussed the Dora Declaration. So if you if you attend a, a grant uh, body, one of the things that they're very clear about is that the, the grant giving bodies are all signatories to the Dora, which is a declaration on research assessment. In essence, what they're saying is do not be is what Dan has said. Uh, do not be influenced by sexy, narrow impact papers which may be published in particular high profile journals but actually read the paper see what the value is it and understand what that how that will generalize what it means to you and your scientific community so they're very clear that when you're judging people's uh, grant applications and their cvs that you should deliberately ignore the the journals that the, the research is published in because they're saying there's no index that will not add value to your assessment and we want you to deliberately exclude that from your assessment and do it on its merit so they're saying don't be seduced by this high impact narrow sexy kind of science and of course behavioral science will tell us that having you swear that you won't is in no way going to get you around your cognitive biases but okay uh, I've got just a couple of points that are completely random. Number one, honestly, this moment in time has completely channeled like the pub table during my PhD, really getting kind of into a topic. And I love that so much, that sort of playing with what it is that we're doing, the meaning of it. Um, I feel like there should be a pitcher of beer and next we're going to do the mind body problem, you know. Um, but I think these are really joyful moments in science because we, we really get to step outside of ourselves and outside of our expertise and talk about the meaning or lack thereof of what we do. Um, so with that, I, it was a great pleasure, actually. Thank you, Dan. And, uh, and then the next thing is around a couple of points to actually wrap it back to the paper we've just had. So the first, I sort of wonder if in the same way we haven't been uh, kind of expecting women to be men, have we been expecting psychology to be physics or, or whatever? Like, why? Why does it have to be the same to be valid? Why does it have to in any way look look the same? And, and I think the other point of that is the only reason that it is is because that is rewarded. So we have to change the structures of publication, right? We have to change the structures of grant funding if we're going to really say this different approach to, to valid science is in fact valuable. And, and it's a funny thing, like I'm not a purist in any way in terms of scientific methodology, whatever. I'm entirely too practical as a human for that. And I can remember a million years ago uh, when microarrays came out and a whole genome didn't even fit on a chip yet, but we had the opportunity to basically grind up some brain, put it over a chip and see what happened, you know? And it was so exciting because it wasn't hypothesis driven, it was data driven and there was power in that, you know, and I think it's it's brought areas of focus that we can then begin to, to go and look at and some of them were rubbish, but some of them were amazing targets to, to pay attention to. And I think I think with that said, this idea that everything has to be um, the same exact approach to science that we've had for hundreds of years is maybe not serving us. And in fact, actually, what we could be doing is, is 
limiting ourselves. They make a nice point in the paper about this idea of layers of information and how I would argue, you know, physics often does not in any way impact the way that we look at marketing. And yet there's photons of light and vision, right? We somehow, we, we allow for there to be a stratification across these layers and we're not bothered by that. And we see stratification within any kind of science of, of the mind, right? Um, because nobody is complaining to neuroscientists that they haven't solved <laughs> the manifestation of the internal emotional dialogue. Like nobody's fussed about that, but psychology, you need to step it up. I don't know. So I think that we've, we've got to maybe question and reflect on why does we put these expectations in certain layers? why it is we allow them to be absent in others and where we might be missing opportunities to actually join up um that's it it looks like we're ending apologies everybody. and estelle <laughs> and nagina also talk in that too about examples of, of good science and how we can follow through from that yeah. but what i took from you really is we need to do the next kaleidoscope live from the pub to to enhance our discussion but i, I have to say to people i don't know if we can bring dan's cat along <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that appears to be the major draw for most people here today, but we will do our very best. But thank you for joining <laughs> us and we hope we see you again next month. Take care. Bye guys.